got it. Okay. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the fourth Wednesday of the month, which means it's time for the Lifestyle Docs, Dr. Munish Chawla and Dr. Bandana Chawla. And today they're going to be talking about substance use, addictions, and behavior change. Please welcome them to the show. Hello, we're happy to be back here on Chef AJ Live. Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, I, 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 love, I love the topic of addiction. So is it substance use or is it substance abuse? That is the question, huh? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. So we're going to focus on digital addiction, but Dr. B is going to go first today. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. And we will get started. Perfect. Okay. All right. So you see that, right? It's showing up. Prescription of wellness with the lifestyle doc, substance use, addictions, and behavioral change or behavior change. Uh, yes. So we have no disclosures today. Um, and these will be our objectives. We will, again, quickly talk about lifestyle medicine. Um, and we've already done the other five pillars. Today, we're going to do the sixth pillar, um, which talks about substance addiction. Um, but it's not limited just to substances. Um, we, many of us are also experiencing food addictions and digital addiction. Um, and then we'll end with how we can cause positive behavior change that we wish to have. So as you guys know, um, this is one of our favorite infographic from American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Um, in the five previous um, lectures, we have covered nutrition, exercise, stress management, sleep, and community. Um, and today we'll be doing that sixth pillar of avoidance of tobacco, limiting alcohol, and other substances. And with that, we also want to talk about addictions in general. Okay, so the last five times when we talked about various things, I just want to give a summary that it's not just American College of Lifestyle Medicine recommending it. When we look at the research and recommendations by World Health Organizations, um, World Health Organization, American Institute of Cancer Research, American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, American College of Cardiology, they all recommend that we as a country um, need to increase our fruits and vegetables. We need to reduce our saturated fat. We need to reduce our added salt, sugar, and oil, which is mainly coming from processed foods. Uh, saturated fat mainly coming from animal products, specifically cheese being the main um, source of saturated fat in the American diet. Um, we need to increase our physical activity and we need to move towards a healthier BMI. So now to move on to today's pillar, um, tobacco that you know, um, the scientific community, even media, everyone's done a good job in educating both the physicians and the lay people about the 
adverse effects. It's, that's not much of a controversy. Uh, we know it causes cancer. We know it increases risk for heart disease. And we also know it increases risk for chronic diseases in general. But even though it seems like common sense now, and it seems like we all know this, this is relatively new information. It wasn't that long ago that we saw commercials and advertisements like these, um, where doctors would be promoting cigarette brands. Um, from 1800s to early 1990s, tobacco was actually a routine part of American hospital landscape. Doctors would often smoke cigars or pipes while delivering a diagnosis or even while in the operating room. So it wasn't until 1991, which is not that long ago, that the Joint Commission of Accreditation of Healthcare Organization announced tobacco control standards for American hospitals and mandated that they go smoke-free by December 31st, 1993. And actually, I started medical school in 1994. Um, and Munish actually even remembers, he's six years older than me, um, time when there were smoke rooms in the hospital. Um, and times when right outside the hospital was a smoke area where when he would pass by there, there would be just like a big smoky um, cloud. So we've come a long way realizing that this is unhealthy, but it took a long time to get there, even a long time to get the medical community to accept the dangers of tobacco. And I think we're in a similar stage now with food and unhealthy food and making that connection between food and health. Okay, and then vaping came around. And I, this is not that long ago either because it was e-cigarette was invented in 2003 by a Chinese pharmacist who developed it to serve as an alternative to smoking. And it was really promoted initially as a way to escape the addiction of cigarettes. And I remember patients would ask me about it. Um, and I, I didn't know that much and I looked it up and I would tell them that, yeah, it seems like in Europe they're using it to get people to quit smoking. So it's probably a good idea. And I feel horrible now that I actually recommended it to some of my patients to get off of cigarettes. Um, but what we now know and what the research has shown over the years that for most people, they continue to smoke and then they add this additional unhealthy habit on. Um, and one pod contains as much nicotine as a standard pack containing 20 cigarettes. Um, and we know it causes lung cancer, GI cancers, including pancreatic cancer and breast cancer. We've seen um, many cases of acute lung injury with pneumonia, pneumatitis, and even death. Um, I know when the first time when you saw a chest x-ray of someone whose lungs were acutely injured by vaping, this was all new to us. Um, since then, we know it has lots of carcinogens. There's even toxic compounds in the aerosol that we don't even know the, uh, the uh, extent of the damage that they cause. Um, and then the flavors came out, right? To get the adolescents and teenagers to get addicted to vaping earlier and earlier. Um, our, two, our two sons live in California as well. And they recently told us that California has passed a law saying that all vape products, other 
that are flavored with other things other than tobacco flavor are now banned. Um, so I'm hoping the rest of the states will follow California in that and ban the bubblegum flavor and all these other flavors to get kids addicted so early on to this habit. So now let's move to alcohol. Um, again, we all know the harmful effects of um, too much alcohol in terms of cancer, of being a neurotoxin and affecting our brain, getting through the blood brain barrier, um, its effect on the liver, cirrhosis, also the cost to society, drunk driving, ruined relationships, families destroyed. The controversy comes in when we talk about light alcohol use. Um, and I want to quickly define light, moderate, and heavy use. Um, light use is considered average of one drink a day or less for women, up to four drinks a week. For men, it's six to eight drinks in a week total. Moderate use would be two drinks a day or eight to 16 drinks in a week. And heavy use is considered over 16 drinks in a week. So now we know um, that light but fairly routine use will still raise your risk for all cancers. And most well-studied is breast cancer. Um, unfortunately, even drinking more than three drinks a week um, will increase the risk of breast cancer for women. And 10 grams consumption of alcohol, um, risk of breast cancer is increased by 5%. Um, and 10 grams is not that much. I had to look this up too. Um, so 12 ounces of beer and five ounces of wine contains about 14 grams of alcohol. So one to two drinks on special occasions or even a drink once a month is not going to be harmful, but um, I, I do encourage my patients to even avoid light alcohol use. And of course, you know, damage to the microbiome. When you think about it, one of the things that we use in the hospital to really um, sanitize everything and get rid of all the bacteria is alcohol. Um, and when you're drinking that, that's also going to affect the healthy bacteria in your gut as well. So addiction is, capacity of our brain is, to be addicted is not just limited to cigarettes and alcohol. We see it with legal and illegal drugs, um, the opiates, addiction is very high. We're seeing it now with digital addiction, food addiction, especially fat, sugar, and salt, and even addictions to our unhealthy behaviors, our poor sleep habits, our sedentary lifestyle. Um, all of these is something that we want to get away from, and I am going to hand it over to Dr. M to start with food addictions first, and then move on to others and teach us how we can do positive behavior change. Okay, so this is, you know, uh, you all are audience of Chef AJ. There's no controversy here, but really there's no controversy in the medical literature that healthful eating really is this simple. Eating most of your calories from whole plant foods limiting the amount of processed foods and really limiting animal foods. So even though a lot of people have this information, they still have trouble kind of following through. So what is going on? 
So this is also going to be familiar to you all because you guys have listened to, I'm sure, Dr. Doug Lyle and uh, Dr. Goldhammer many times, but I'm going to briefly review the pleasure trap with everyone. So the main things that our brain gets really excited about are sugar, oil, salt, and then combinations of sugar, oil, and salt, especially foods that have really high calorie density. And just to remind everyone, you know, just different calories in different foods. This is, you know, one pound of broccoli or one pound of spinach has 100 calories. And the most calorie dense food we can uh, put into our body is refined oil. Whereas one pound of oil has 4,000 calories. And just to put it in perspective, one tablespoon of oil has 120 calories. So one tablespoon of oil has more calories than one pound of broccoli, spinach, bell peppers. You can just see how when you've got lots of oil, lots of sugar, how this is going to really increase the calorie density on the foods that you're eating. So I'm going to kind of uh, go over sort of the pleasure response, sort of my interpretation of the pleasure trap. So this is how we evolved in an environment of scarcity. So if you think back 20,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, most of what's available in our environment is whole plant foods, lots of fruits, vegetables, berries, these sort of things that are relatively low in calories. And on the x-axis here, we have whole plant foods. And on this one, we have the pleasure response or the amount of dopamine that's produced. So this would be low dopamine production, normal and high. So, you know, people are enjoying their food when they're hungry, they eat whole plant foods, they're satiated, you know, they have a normal dopamine response. Every once in a while, you know, they have a, a lot of meat from a large animal. Every now and then they get nuts and seeds. But these things are not usual, not an everyday thing. And they're back to their usual diet of lots of greens, fruits, berries, these sort of things. And, you know, they kind of, the body kind of goes back to equilibrium and they're enjoying their, their diet. And every once in a while, you know, 50,000 years ago, there's a famine, there's food insecurity. Sometimes food's just not available in the environment that you're in. And then if you eat anything, even a piece of lettuce, you think it's the best thing that you've ever eaten. So your response, pleasure response is really high. But there's a thing called neuroadaptation that if you continue to eat that same food, the pleasure response or the amount of dopamine produced is going to be less. It's going to kind of come back down to baseline. So this is how we evolved. This is how we were in most of human history. In the last 50 years or so, certainly no more than 75, we have what's called an environment of abundance. So let's say somebody from, you know, the Amazon basin or rural village in Africa that really hasn't been exposed to much processed foods or high calorie foods. They're eating the foods in their environment. They're living their life. They're enjoying the food. But then they move to this country or other Western countries and they're exposed to fast food, to desserts, to ice cream, to chips and crackers really high calorie foods, junk foods. And for a while, you know, they're really enjoying these foods because, you know, more dopamine is produced, the more calories there are in a food. And if this continues 
over time, people keep continuing to eat these high calorie foods, you notice that neuroadaptation, you know, the body always kind of wants to go back to baseline, to equilibrium. So now that they're eating these really rich, you know, steaks, burgers, shakes, french fries, crackers, after a while, they don't get the same high. They don't get the same amount of dopamine being produced. It kind of goes back to baseline. So then a person hears about a whole food plant-based diet, or they have a health challenge, or they come to Chef AJ's community or some other plant-based community, and they say, okay, you're having all these health challenges. You know, a whole food plant-based diet could really help you. And then they say, okay, we'll give it a try. But now since the system, oops, sorry about that, system has gotten used to these really high calorie foods, when you eat the lower calorie, simpler whole plant foods, they don't taste very good. You're not really enjoying your food. But if you stay persistent, you know, neuroadaptation works the other way too. Your taste buds change, your neurons start firing again, you get the normal amount of dopamine release, normal amount of pleasure. But it, there is a journey here. It does take some time, does take some effort. And, you know, being part of a healthy community is very helpful. So I want to kind of go over sort of the reward pathways in the brain, and I'm sort of focusing on dopamine. There are other chemicals involved, but just this is the main chemical. And if anyone is interested in learning more about this topic, this is a wonderful book by Dr. Anna Lemke. She's one of the researchers at Stanford. And her book, Dopamine Nation, is, you know, really goes over a lot of these concepts, even in more detail. So this is sort of a, another for, uh, way to kind of see what happens when we eat something we enjoy. So when we, let's say, eat a cookie, we get, you know, this is a person who's eating it on occasion. They're not addicted to sugar or anything else. They enjoy the uh, experience of eating a cookie, and then that experience fades away. And the really important thing to notice here that after, you know, a while, they're actually kind of, the dopamine state is lower. Okay, so this is the time when most people get a craving that maybe they want another cookie. If they're watching a TikTok video or something else in you know, digital media, they're checking one post and they enjoy the post, but you know, after that's passed, they're kind of feeling a little bit low and they wanna check another post. So whether it's you know, smartphones or social media or drugs or food or shopping, this is the dopamine low, which sort of compels or gives people craving to, sorry about that, that you know, wants you to repeat that behavior. So if you are repeating this behavior on a regular basis, and certainly if you become addicted to whatever, uh, you are challenged with, whether it's food, whether it's shopping or gambling, you notice on this graph, the amount of pleasure you get from food or gambling is much less, but the downturn, the amount of dopamine deficit state is a lot lower, is a lot more. They're in a defi uh, dopamine deficit state longer and the spike is deeper. And if there's you know, pretty significant or severe reduction, 
they are in a dopamine deficit state. So now they need to do the behavior, not necessarily to feel good, but really to avoid feeling bad. And here's a functional MRI image on what that reduced dopamine state looks like. So this is someone you know, doing any sort of activity. And when dopamine is produced in the brain, you know, these red things are what's highlighting that the dopamine is being released in the basal ganglia. But when you're highly addicted, even when you're repeating that behavior, you're getting much less pleasure, just a little bit of yellow, no red at all. So this is, you know, an image from functional MRI. And you notice that here is an image of someone addicted to cocaine, and here's an image of someone addicted to sugar. It looks very much the same. And so then the question is, okay, if dopamine is one of the central molecules that's involved in the pleasure response, and when we get addicted, you know, we're sort of in this trap that we don't feel good as a baseline, you know, what can we do about it? So really, it takes a systematic, comprehensive approach. We need to look at our external environment, internal environment, and sometimes you need expert help, you know just a health coach or a healthy community may not be enough. You may need to work with a psychologist or use all of these tools. So this is the model that I have developed over the last three years working as a lifestyle medicine physician in our clinic, uh, Lifestyle Docs. And this just kind of highlights that this is a process. This is a comprehensive approach. And it's not something you're going to be able to do, do it quickly. And it, you know, it just takes a lot of diligence. And the four main components are clarity, commitment, compassion, and consistency. So I'm gonna go over this model sort of a little bit quicker today. But clarity means, okay, what are your health goals? What are you trying to change? What is not working for you? Why do you wanna make the change? And do you have any clarity on how you can make the change? So, you know, that that's very important. And a lot of times people just kind of keep getting mired. Okay, let me research this. Let me research that. They're not quite sure what to do. So I tell them, okay, you know, we can do three different, we can attack this three different ways, but treat it like an experiment. And if one approach is not working so well, we can always shift. So the crucial thing is to just get started. Oftentimes, if you give people, you know, things are sort of nebulous, they're not quite sure, you know, how this is going to work out, if they're going to be able to do it. But really thinking about the vision of your future self, having clarity around that. Okay, what do I want to be like or look like or feel like, let's say, in three months or six months? And really having clarity. Okay, this is what I'm working towards. And then committing to the process. Once you picked out, okay, this is going to be the approach. I'm going to work with a health coach or, or work with a lifestyle medicine physician. Whatever you decide to do, you need to commit to the process. And then I'm going to talk about, you know, what are some things we can change in the external environment and the internal environment? So as an example, you know, instead of talking about food, let's focus on social media or uh, smartphones. So what can we do? Let's say someone is, you know, really habituated, you know, starting to develop an addiction around cell phones, you know, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or TikTok videos, you know, whatever, you know, they are pulled towards, especially smartphones. Some people are just checking, compulsively checking their emails every two minutes. 
the first thing to do is to track, okay, what am I doing? When am I doing it? How often am I doing it? Just like we have, you know, intermittent fasting for food, you can do intermittent fasting from your device. You can say, okay, I won't turn on or go to my phone until eight in the morning, nine in the morning, whatever you decide. And I'll put away the phone at nine in the evening, 10 in the evening, whatever works for you. Another thing that can really help is not having it in your immediate environment. If you're working on, you know, a project or, you know, working in the kitchen, you don't necessarily need your phone at that point. So just leaving in the other room. That way, a lot of times I find myself, you know, working on one thing and the phone is right there. I just reach for it without even realizing I'm reaching for it. And then I'm, you know, checking the weather or checking something. So just getting it out of your immediate area. You know, consider limiting platforms. If you are really, you know, you're not too bad at checking emails or maybe even Instagram, but you really, once you get on TikTok, it is hard to get off. So maybe you consider that, you know, I'm only going to use the platforms that are needed for my work or just avoid that one platform that really gives you trouble. Once you know, you are in a highly addictive state that dopamine is not being produced. You're kind of in this dopamine deprivation state. You really need to kind of do like an extended fast, really work with someone, really have a supportive community. When you're here, this is not a solo task at this point. And the other thing that's really important uh, when you're trying to go from really highly addicted place where dopamine is at a deficit to kind of going back to our equilibrium. And when you have a, a positive stimulus, appropriate amount of dopamine is produced and it kind of comes back to baseline when you're not using that stimulus. So to go from this state of dopamine deprivation to sort of our normal equilibrium state, another thing that can be really helpful is working on your internal environment. And for this, I want to introduce my mindfulness approach, also called the PAL approach, P-A-L. That first thing to do, you know, when you're practicing mindfulness is to just pause. All of us get busy, you know, just doing, doing, doing. We're on autopilot, jumping from one thing to another. And we oftentimes don't even take a break. So the first thing to do is just to pause and just be present in the present moment. Okay, next step in practicing mindfulness is just paying attention to the bodily sensations, to your thoughts. So just bring attention inward. You know, you can lower your gaze, you can close your eyes and just notice what is happening in the body in the present moment. Let's say this is a time, you know, you've just watched a TikTok video and you're getting that craving that you want to watch another video. So instead of doing that, we're going to pause, we're going to bring our attention to the body and just notice that, you know, some part of the body feels uneasy. There's a craving. And if you can just kind of stay with that craving for just a little bit, what you will notice that that craving passes. And until the craving passes, you can bring some self-love and self-compassion. And you can even repeat these statements. At this time, I'm having a hard time. At this time, I really feel like, you know, the only thing that's going to make me feel better 
is to watch another video. But just being with those thoughts, just noticing those thoughts, just being with that unpleasant sensation, even for a little bit, even if you can delay watching the next video, it can do a lot of good. And if you keep practicing, slowly, slowly, you're able to have the skillful response where you say, okay, I've watched that video. That's good enough for today. And I am going to move on and do something else. So this takes some time. And as I mentioned, if you're highly addicted, it may take more than just modifying your external environment or internal environment. You really may need to work with a psychologist or other health specialist. I really want to kind of underscore that the key to making this work is self-compassion. It's just sort of understanding our physiology that let's say your intention was that, you know, after you watch one video, you're not going to go to the next video, but you keep finding yourself that you keep going to that next video. But whenever you're able to make the pause, if you can bring some self-love, some compassion, some kind compassion, and this is in the terminology of Dr. Kristen Neff, one of the researchers from UT Austin, she says, you know, when you're not able to do the uh, action that you wanted to do, you know, let's say you wanted to turn off social media, but you were not able to, and you realize, oh, I should have quit, you know, 30 minutes ago. This is the time for kind compassion. This is not the time to, you know, have self-denigrating thoughts, not the time to berate yourself, not the time to say, why can't I do this? I'm, you know, worthless. All this negative self-talk that oftentimes we do. So really focusing on kind compassion, just realizing, okay, this is hard, this is difficult, but I'm going to stay committed. And the staying committed part is the fierce compassion that I'm going to change my external environment. I'm going to bring mindfulness into my life on a regular basis. Maybe I'll start a mindfulness practice or going out in nature or gardening or yoga, other things that will build my resilience. So making a commitment that I'm going to stick with this, that's the fierce compassion. And being kind when you're not always able to live up to the expectations that you, know, you had, that's the kind compassion. So it takes really a combination of the two. And finally, you know, consistency is the key, the key. You know, just sticking with it, finding healthy community. And as I mentioned previously, oftentimes we do need expert help. So this is, you know, I kind of, we kind of mixed two or three lectures for this one and wanted to kind of give you a flavor of the mindfulness approach to behavior change. And we'll be doing a longer uh, lecture on this uh, later in August of this year. So I'm going to stop the share and invite Dr. B back. For some reason, I thought this lecture was going to be longer, but I guess it's actually yeah, it's been actually one of our shorter one of our shorter ones. So, in uh, any case, we are happy to uh, answer any questions that you all may have. All right, let me go. Thank you. That was great. Let me go to the chat. So, guys, if you have questions, please start them with four question marks and we will have the doctors answer them. Let me see if any were sent in in advance for you guys, and I will let you know. It, of all the pillars that you talked about, are there ones that you specialize in or are your favorites, or are you an equal opportunity lifestyle medicine doctor? Um, 
I know. Well, Dr. M is kind of like a mindfulness expert and teacher. So I think stress management and behavior change may be his. Mm -hmm. For me, um, I think nutrition is probably is probably mine. Yeah. And you know, after the nutrition education, after the person kind of buys in, okay, this is the way I should be eating, this is the way I know would be, you know, most healthful for me, kind of getting them to do it on a regular basis, you know, creating that positive, sustainable behavior change. I feel like that's where, you know, I bring more value to the patients, just kind of guiding them. And, you know, we also provide a healthy community. As you know, we have regular meditation and yoga and cooking classes and group support sessions, just really providing an ecosystem of health and wellness giving them, you know, the, the support and the community they need. Yeah. You know, so when it comes to food, this topic comes up a lot. Is it really an addiction? Because when we had Dr. McDougall on, he doesn't believe it's an addiction the way that, you know, heroin or alcohol is because he says that you don't go through the detox and people don't die of food addiction. And I, I don't think people die directly of food addiction. I think they can die as a consequence of things that go wrong in their body because of it. So, so, you know, I don't know if addiction is even, what is an addiction? And is it the right word when we're talking about these hyperpalatable foods? Yeah, I think addiction is the right food. So addiction is, you know, doing a behavior that you know is not good for you. Even knowing the negative consequences, you still continue to engage in that behavior. So, you know, that's how most psychologists would define addiction. And, you know, it doesn't say that it has to be just for heroin or alcohol. So I think in the newer literature, I mean, this, was, this has been a controversy probably for, you know, 20, 30 years, but certainly with researchers like Anna Lemke and I'm forgetting the other researcher. Uh, I mean, Kelly McGonigal has talked about it. So many psychologists really... You and know, what you see in like MRIs and stuff, when you're showing that cocaine and, and sugar and what we see within terms of dopamine and dopamine deficiency, it's very similar to substance abuse um, addiction. Right. right. You know, but, yeah. But sometimes people that have what they think are the more serious addictions kind of poo-poo this or say like, how dare you call this an addiction? You don't struggle like I do, but they don't realize unless they also have food addiction or whatever you want to call it, that mm -hmm. you can live your, your life without heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, alcohol, cigarettes, even, even this, you know, there are people that don't have these, but at mm -hmm. some point you got to eat. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and you know, as the functional MRI image that I showed, you know, you can burn out sort of your dopamine uh, neuron cells. So these are the cells that in the basal ganglion, when we're exposed to a pleasurable stimuli, they light up. And on that image, should I just go back? Well, on that image, the more red there is, the more yellow there is, means the more dopamine is being produced. And if, you know, if you remember that when you are addicted to, let's say, sugar or cocaine, that image looks entirely the mm -hmm. same. And you know, functional MRI has literally been around for 15, 20 years. So a lot of this research is fairly new. And you know, some of the folks that are trained a little bit earlier, they you know, don't buy into it, but really the effects on the brain and our physiology are very similar. It, doesn't, it really doesn't even matter if it's sugar 
or gambling to a certain extent. It's whatever behavior, you do it often enough, the amount of pleasure you get from that behavior is reduced. This is the way our physiology works. And then you never get back to baseline. You're always in a dopamine deficient state. Then you end up doing the behavior, not because it feels good, because, but because you feel so bad that it compels you to do the behavior over and over. That's how I felt when I was in the throes of what I believe was a food addiction or sugar addiction. I mean, nobody in their forties wants to get up and have a Coke Slurpee with eight pumps of vanilla syrup. But if I didn't have it, I couldn't, I literally could not function. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is just, this, this is the way the physiology reacts, you know, and this is, you know, now well-studied and extensive research we have available. We didn't have 10 years ago. Yeah. One of and the experts, Dr. Gabramante, mm -hmm. who's written a lot about addictions as well. Um, he would definitely qualify food addiction as something. Just and the thing well. is, is, I think the problem is the word food, because let's face it, it's not food. Do you see anybody addicted to arugula really? Has that ever happened? Right. I don't mm -hmm. think so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but so I think I think it should be maybe processed food or hyperpalatable mm -hmm. yeah. food. I think the problem is just calling it food because you can't really be addicted to food, but, you know, and, and I'm curious because I don't, I don't really, I, I don't like arguing with people. I, it really, I like people to say their truth. And if it resonates with somebody, great. But for the doctors that don't believe in food addiction, what do they think the problem is then? Why do they think these people that feel like they have it can't stop eating those foods? Then what is it? What is your, exp what is your explanation? I'm asking the people that don't believe in it. What is your explanation? Right, and, and they don't have a good answer. <laughs> yeah, because it's not, not lack of willpower or not lack of, you know, desire or motivation because many of those people don't want to be in that. Um, so, yeah, so it has to be. Right. Um, I mean, I've had people, like, say literally and many times to me, I would rather die than give up blank with juice, yeah. coffee, alcohol. I mean, that... I mean, is that normal human behavior to say you would literally rather die than stop this addiction? I mean, this is, you know, this is how we can really become compelled to act in a certain way in the moment, right? When that addiction, when that craving hits, you know, this is responsible for, you know, broken families, relationships, you know, all sorts of, you know, adverse outcomes that we're seeing. And just to, you know, kind of enlarge the perspective a little bit, just the fact that I'm really glad that you mentioned that no one's addicted to arugula or broccoli, but people are addicted to these hyperpalatable hyper palatable foods, processed foods that are high in sugar, fat, and salt. Exactly. Because one of the last you were saying is food really an addiction. And that's why I feel like it shouldn't be called food. I mean, it shouldn't be called food addiction. It should be called ultra processed, you know, something else, because that's why I think people don't like the term. You know, yeah. one, of, one of the addiction experts that have come on the show, Dr. Baratarman says, you know, we should call it something else, dopamine deficiency disorder, something, because I think the problem is the, is the word. And I think that's why so many doctors are uncomfortable with calling it food addiction. Yeah, like substances. Exactly. Because like I said, I've never been to an arugula anonymous meeting. There's never been anybody showing up for that. Or, you, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that 
And again, I could, this is like you're speaking my language now because I light up when talking about this because I find it really fascinating. But a lot of the doctors that I've interviewed on the show and people think it's it's not just a vegan show. There's many guests that aren't vegan, but because I'm vegan, most of the guests are because that's who's in my community. Mm-hmm. But the way they, I, this is what I never understood is that the way that food addiction is treated in the non-vegan world, because it's not really being treated in the vegan world since it seems like it's the vegan doctors for the most part that aren't the ones believing in it are with a weight and measuring program. And I never understood how, I mean, I understand that some of them are based in not telling people to eat sugar and flour, which I think is great. They're not healthy foods, whether you're food addicted, overweight or not. But I don't, I never understood how the solution for this addiction was to tell people to weigh and measure all their food. Like to me, that just never made any sense. Like how weighing out seven ounces of greens is going to help you with your you know, with what you think is a food addiction. And no one has ever been able to explain that to me that believes in that type of um, approach. Right, right. I mean, and as you know very well that, you know, 97% of all diet programs, they fail in less than a year, right? So when you're measuring your food, when you're, you know, quantifying your food, eating this, not eating that, you know, it's really that state of deprivation that that produces. You can live like that for a while, but eventually your hunger drive kicks in and that's when you eat everything in the pantry and the refrigerator. So unless you can learn to have a better relationship with food and really say, okay, I'm going to work on this. This is not easy, but I'm going to use the resources I have. I'm going to join a healthy community, maybe even get expert help and whatever that looks like for that person and really say, okay, I'm making a commitment to doing this. And when you do that and you introduce foods that are lower in calorie density, but still give you pleasure and make you feel full and satiated after you've eaten, then your hunger drive quietens down. And over time, your neuroadaptation works both ways. Your dopamine you know, neurons come back online and you're getting lots of pleasure from eating simpler foods. <laughs> you're not gonna get there by under eating the same crappy diet. You have to change your diet I love that. You're not going to get there by eating the same crappy diet or even weighing green vegetables. That's like crazy to me. I love that. Thank you. That's that, that almost, thank you. That's wonderful. (laughs) So Jennifer says, where do we find them? Meaning you guys, are you virtual? So maybe, because not everybody has seen every episode. So maybe tell a little bit about what you do. And if people wanted to work with you, how they would do that. Yeah, so we're based in Houston area, and we are board certified in, uh, I'm in lifestyle medicine, Dr. B is internal medicine and lifestyle medicine, and we are only licensed in Texas. So if you're in the Texas area, I work from patients from, you know, El Paso, San Antonio, but actually I work with patients from Louisiana and Oklahoma and, you know, the patient would drive in to see me. So, but they have to be either come into our clinic or they have to be in Texas and we can do it virtually as long as they're in Texas. And we are on social media. We're on um, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, um, Our website has the Zoom link to uh, meditation first and third Saturday of the month. Anybody anywhere can attend that. Um, Yeah, and you can reach out to us on social media. We're good about trying to reply back and answer any questions. 
Here's a, a question from Jessica, and I really like it because I can relate to this. And basically it says, when people have a stressful life situation, how do you suggest we even remember to do mindfulness activities like relaxing and breathing when we're in the middle of a mess? The mess, I, I agree with that because, you know, when everything's fine, I can like, oh yeah. But when you're in the throes of something, how do you do, I, that's a great question. Maybe you can answer it. Yeah, yeah. So really good question, as you mentioned. So when we are not in some stressful event, that's the time to kind of build your resilience. That's the time to do these practices kind of almost when you don't need them. So every time, you know, you're doing yoga or mindfulness, you're making yourself more resilient. So when a stressful event occurs, one, you're not knocked off as much as you would be if you didn't have these practices under your belt. And the, you know, this, and, you know, I don't want to minimize people's challenges, but whatever the challenge may be, you're going to find out that you're off track less often and off track for a lesser period of time. But if you have incorporated these healthier tools of mindfulness and, you know, going to nature or doing yoga on a regular basis, whatever it is for you, you're going to now remember it quicker, right? Because it's developed a, you've developed a practice. It's become part of your everyday thing. So even in the midst of the storm, you know, you're going to remember it, maybe not immediately, but not three days later, let's say. So you're going to remember it sooner. That's why we call, call it a practice, right? Practice yoga, practice meditation, practice mindfulness, because the more you practice, the better you get at it. And the more you're able to come to it even when it's super hard. And I love your pals thing because that first P of pause, I am able to remind myself of that pause at times um, when things are really stressed. Yeah, and practicing. You guys practice medicine. <laughs> yes, yes, that's to practice. Right. You know, so many people turn to substances for stress relief and I get it, but I find the best thing is our pets, pets mm -hmm. in nature. Like that's mm -hmm. the most common thing. And I just, when I'm, you know, I have panic disorder. I mean, it's, I, I mean, that's my diagnosis, but I don't walk around like having panic attacks anymore, but I mean, it's still, it's still lurking there. You know, if the, if the situation is right, like a car accident, I'll have a panic attack, but I find the best thing. I just take my little dog Bailey. And I just like, I literally like lay down and put her on my chest, heart to heart. And it's like, <laughs> just dissipates. I mean, it's better than, it's better than Valium. It's like, it's incredible. Like how for me, like a, a, a pet is just like the most common thing in the world. Yeah, I'm yeah. really glad you mentioned that because I really want to, you know, have people, whatever is going to work for you, whether it's a pet, another family member, nature, gardening, yoga, tai chi, mindfulness, music, mm -hmm. you know, playing music, listening to music, whatever, you know, gives you that you know, that you're able to just kind of relax and calm and just be with what is, is it's going to work. So there's no one size fits all. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. Yeah. But also like, I think the pillars of lifestyle medicine are interrelated because we have, we have a question here about insomnia that I'm going to get to, but my guess, I don't know for sure. And I'm making an assumption is that this person probably doesn't exercise because like, I find that, you know, I don't like to exercise, but Dr. Doug Lyle, who's my friend and psychologist said, that's your psychiatric medicine. So in other words, I'm a very anxious person. And so I don't like it, but I do it first thing in the morning vigorously for an hour because it's sort of like draining from the anxiety 
channels in my body. Now that doesn't mean if something scary happens, I won't get anxious again. But 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 what having that one hour minimum of vigorous daily exercise does is it sort of you know, it, it calms me down and also makes it like, you know, I'm, it makes me tired, not tired, but I feel like on there on days that I can't exercise. And when I say can't, it's usually because like, let's say I had a 7am flight. I don't get tired at night. Like I have to, like, that's, we're designed to move. And if we don't move our body, you know, we don't, we don't sleep well. And so her, her question is, Sleep is so critical. And if insomnia and you have, if you have insomnia and major interrupted sleep without pills, I've found that the only thing that can help is a marijuana gummy. What are your thoughts? And I would say to her, how much is she exercising first in the daytime or even before that she's not sleeping at night? And you can answer that, Kathy, in the chat. But but how, how do you feel about um, mar yeah. marijuana, I guess, gummy bears? I'm guessing they probably have sugar too, because I can't imagine pot tastes very good without it. Right, right. Just about every gummy bear that's on the market has sugar or, you know, stevia or some sugar-like substance. So, you know, that in itself is a problem, but this is, you know, what the field of lifestyle medicine is really trying to teach us, really trying to make physicians aware, you know, everyone aware that we have the tools that we need, you know, within, within us, you know, we can all choose to eat a little bit healthier. They'll help with sleep. You can, you know, eat a little bit sooner. They'll help with sleep. You can exercise on a regular basis. That'll help with sleep. You can not engage in substances like alcohol or caffeine. Those are going to disrupt your sleep. You, uh, you know, when you have healthy ways to manage your stress and you're not wired and anxious at night, that's going to help with sleep and insomnia. So all of this works. Being outdoors, yeah. getting sunlight. Um, that helps with our cycle, uh, sleep-wake cycle and melatonin. Um, uh, there's one thing that I remembered when you guys were talking about pets and nature and how calming that is. Um, this Saturday, you know, every first and third Saturday of the month, we have meditation on Zoom. But this Saturday, actually, Dr. M is going to do meditation with the cows. We're actually going to be at Rowdy Girl Animal Sanctuary, and we're going to be doing meditation from there so i wonder if that'll be even more relaxing because of the cows around there <laughs> so this is an animal animal sanctuary welcome to join us on zoom the link is on our website well i don't think it's going to be meditation it's going to be mooditation there you go. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got the cows there okay so here's a question from mona when one has a food that triggers an eating binge, what's the best way to get back on track? I I typed in the chat, don't have that food in your house and don't take the first bite. But I guess right. that's not always possible. Yeah. So, you know, getting back on track, this is where, you know, obviously removing it from your environment, external, you know, environment. external environment, doing that. And also, what kind of story are you telling yourself when you have that food? This is where you can work on the internal environment a little bit. You can say, okay, I know this is a challenge for me. I'm going to make a commitment that I, you know, don't bring this into the house. And let's say you're at a friend's house. Whatever you need to do to minimize your chances of taking, you know, getting that food. But let's say you do do that. If you are really kind of negative and mean to yourself that, you know, you are a loser, you can't do this, what that does is that increases the stress in your system, right? Whether somebody says a mean word to you or you do it to yourself, 
you know, the brain is agnostic in this sense. It's going to respond that someone said a mean word and it's mm -hmm. going to go into fight and flight mode, right? And when we go into that mode, we have higher stress hormones. All the research shows when you stress yourself that way, you are going to be less able to follow through on all the things that you want to make, make positive behavior change on. So really working on stress management and mindfulness to and compassion when you mm -hmm. do end up having that food because no one's going to be perfect. So you have that food, how quickly can you bounce back? How quickly can you get on track? So you know, working on both the external environment and then also working on the internal environment. And it's a journey and just being kind and compassionate to yourself and you know, staying committed. Okay, this is important to me. I am going to do it. I'm going to stick with this, but kindly with self-compassion. Yeah. You know, do you think that people are, they vary in their susceptibility to these addictive substances? Because I remember hearing this and apologize if it's not accurate, but I could have sworn somebody on the show, a doctor told me about this, that I guess in Vietnam, there were people that were using heroin there and they came back and not all of them remained addicted to heroin. They were using it there because that, I mean, they're in a war, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, so I'm not that I would ever want to try heroin, but is it true that not every addictive substance is addictive for every person. That is 100% correct. So each person has their own unique uh, neurochemistry, unique genetics. And one person, you know, they do heroin one time and they are hooked on it for life. Some person does it on occasion and it's, you know, something that happens when they get together and it never becomes part of their life. And we have really good data with cigarette smoking mm -hmm. because lots of people smoke when they go to the bar. They go to the bar, you know, or that sort of setting, you know, once or twice a month, they'll smoke a few cigarettes and that's it. It has no effect on them. But a third of patients are highly susceptible to cigarette smoking. You know, once they're introduced to it, they have a hard time. So it's almost like our brain kind of chooses its master mm -hmm. and that can be food, that can be alcohol, that can be heroin, that can be gambling. So each of us are unique in that sense. We each have unique vulnerabilities and whatever we have, a, I don't want to say genetic vulnerability because it involves more than just genetics, you know, whatever life situation, however mm -hmm. our neurochemistry ends up being, you know, we're going to be perfectly fine with food, but have a challenge with alcohol or have trouble with salt and sugar is not a problem. So these, this is very individual and it's a hundred percent. This has been actually quite well studied and that's exactly the case. Well, then I think it's important for people to know themselves, but that said, is there a way we can have this information without taking the first puff, the first snort, <laughs> the first drink? I remember growing up, I was born in 1960 and back then you could smoke like in on airplanes, you could smoke in movie theaters and stores. And I remember it was, well, actually I also remember like we didn't even lock our houses back then, but also when you would go to somebody's house, in addition to like a candy dish, there would be a thing with cigarettes, like people, you know, and I remember having a friend whose mother didn't smoke, but once a week she played bridge and she would smoke at the bridge game. But, she, but, and, and I always thought that was fascinating because both my parents smoked like chimneys and I'm like, how can you only do this once a week? You know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I just found it, you know, so interesting because when I was much younger, like, and I, I don't drink alcohol mainly because I can't stand it. It's not, I mean, if I liked it, I probably would have drank it. And I know like you've, you've talked about, and I've heard people like their first beer and then 
they're hooked for life. But when I was in my 20s, I was kind of broke. And I would do this thing with this company called Market Research. And they would send me to these focus groups where I would try these products and give my opinion. And I would get like, you know, like $150, which like when you're 20 and broke, that was like a lot of money, right? And so one of them was to test vodkas. And, and I had never really drank alcohol. And even if I had, like, I mean, it was like the nasty, it was like drinking like the kind of alcoholic. I remember when I got my ears pierced. I mean, I never drank it, but it, it was like vile. And I probably got a little bit tipsy from it, but I'm like, I'm thinking the whole time, like, this is disgusting. Like, I, and I'm not judging people for like it. Please don't, I'm not saying that at all because I get it. But for me, it was like, like, this is so yucky. Like, why does anybody like this? But then again, you know, give me any cake, candy, cookie, pie, or ice cream, even like the worst one, like in the worst candy, I remember growing up at Halloween, there were these orange things called circus peanuts and I hated them, but like I could get my fix. So I just find it fascinating that some people are attracted to that. And some people are attracted to multiple things. I guess I'm saying, I wish there was a way to find out before we succumbed what it was because again nobody needs to touch these addictive substances when unfortunately people are talking about how poorly their parents ate when they were pregnant it's like many of us come out of the gate already addicted because of what our our mothers ate and their their lifestyle yeah yeah and this is really i'm glad you kind of you know brought this because the environment that's in our culture right now the easily available addicted foods and addicted substances. You know, this is not normal, natural human environment. This is, you know, if someone is really interested in learning more about this, read this book by Gaber Mate, M-A-T-E. It's the myth of normal. He's saying, you know, our society these days, you know, whether it's food, substances, you know, our social relations, this is not the way that human beings thrive, that we are making it really challenging on ourselves. So we really have to recognize that, that, you know, we need to work at a personal level, but also, you know, work on the collective. I know I don't have any, I don't have any prescription to, you know, how to do that, but that really, you know, needs to be part of the equation. I wonder if one day they'll have genetic testing and they'll say, hey, look, you have this, you're, you have the propensity to be an alcoholic, so don't don't start, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that, that would be helpful. Yeah, mm -hmm. Diane is saying peanut butter is her downfall. See, everybody's everybody has different predilections for this. Do you know Gabor Mate? We don't. We, we wish we did. Yeah. I know. I'd love, I would love, love, love to have him on the show. I love that you talk about mindfulness instead of just telling people they have to meditate because not everyone can just sit there and do what's known as the formal meditation. And then they feel like they failed because they can't. But there's so many things you could do that are meditative that still count. Absolutely. He teaches a lot of his patients breathing exercises. And for a lot of people who can't meditate, the breathing exercises help them get to similar results. One of the things I do to calm myself down is I do regular Reiki. I have a Reiki <laughs> practitioner. I've been doing that for over 20 years, massages, like all those kind of things, acupuncture, like all those like Eastern type modalities, just are just anything that calms my nervous system is like, that's what I do. Yeah. Because I, I've tried just sitting there and like, you know, and it's just that doesn't work for me. So, yeah. Cool. So Susanna asks, how do you suggest people cope with living in an environment where addictive foods are present? And this is a tough one because before I became, you know, food sober and I was weighing, you know, 50, 60 pounds more than I weigh now. I remember going to the True North Health Center and Dr. Lyle saying we must work harder on our environment than we do ourselves. So I don't think I would have been successful if there was, you know, junk food in my house. 
house. And I'm grateful that I have a husband that understands that. But so many people live in households where where their addictive drug is present. Right, right. And this is, you know, really, you know, over the years, the patients who kind of stick with it, they do really well. And the main, you know, other patients kind of sticking with it, and they're still not making any significant progress. The bigger fact, biggest factor seems to be that the home environment is not clean. Mm -hmm. So really, this is something you really have to talk to your spouse or whoever's living with you that if you choose to have this in the house, it's got to be in a specific place. It can't be on the counter. It can't be easily accessible in the pantry. You have to negotiate and just let them know this is something that's important to me. And, you know, if you want to eat it, you know, just eat it outside the house. But if you have to bring it in, it, it's got to be in a place where the person, you know, on this journey feels comfortable. That's where it is. I mean, it is just these things. I'm going to use the word again. These things are very addictive. They give us an intense form of craving that we literally feel like if we don't get it, you know, we're just going to pass out. So yeah. cannot minimize how, you know, how much of a hold this can have on us. And really, you know, whatever we can do to clean up the environment to the extent possible is, is just needed. Are you familiar with like Dr. Lyle's talk or the five points of personality or he's, he's not the one that made that up. He has the talk about it, but how people, their, their personalities on a continuum of different things like conscientious, you know, to less conscientious, to extroverted, to introversion. And there's one factor agreeable versus disagreeable Mm -hmm. and, and everybody's somewhere on the spectrum. And then you have like Dr. Goldhammer, who's like way in the disagreeable side. And then you have, you know, the most agreeable person. And I have found the people that struggle in an unclean environment tend to be the people pleasers and the agreeable people, because many of us that would just say, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out, but that's my house, my rules. And you're not bringing that food in there, especially if they're children that aren't paying rent. I can see it like if it's a roommate situation, that would be difficult. If somebody's paying rent, you know, it'd be hard to say you can't have that here, but if it's your family, you should be able to say, this is a trigger for me. And you can't, you know, you, and you just can't have it in the house. I don't, I never understood people that don't fight for their uh, sobriety. I don't get it. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, what you just said will empower her to lay down the law in her home because yeah. it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. This is great. I really get, you just got me all fired up because I just, <laughs> I just find this a really, really fascinating topic. I'm always interested in why people do what they do. And it just seems that whether you will call it a food addiction or call it whatever you want, people are getting sicker all the time with substances that they are using in many different ways. And it's just, it's kind of sad to watch. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'm giving you guys July off for good behavior and, <laughs> and you'll be moving to uh, the, the, the lifestyle medicine doc show is moving from the fourth Thursday of the month to the fourth, whatever, excuse me, today is Wednesday, the fourth Wednesday to the third Thursday. And uh, we look forward to having you. Co- oh, okay. All right. I just saw a question. I was going to let you go, but it's about dopamine receptors and it sounds sure. really interesting from Laura. Any information on short fasts and dopamine receptor regrowth after a long history of opiate addiction? That might be a great question for Dr. Goldhammer, but. Uh, right. Yeah. So, I mean, these things, let me make sure I understand the question correctly. She's saying just doing a short fast and avoiding, you know, anything that triggers dopamine release. 
Is that how you're reading it, Chef AJ? Well, I, I, it sounds like she she's somebody that struggled with opiate addiction or, or drug addiction, long history, and maybe has been using water fasts to uh, to whatever, you know, re, I don't know if it's regrow the dopamine receptors or make them more sensitive again. That's a very good question. And you're right, Dr. Goldhammer would be the right person to answer that, but I can kind of guess. So anytime, you know, you're doing extended water fasting, everything in the body is getting detoxed. Right. And part of what makes it effective is the autophagy. You're kind of getting rid of old dysfunctional cells. And then when you feed the body really healthful foods, the new cells, the new stem cells are going to be more functional. So, you know, he would know, you know, how long you need to do the fast, you know, what sort of intervention there would be. But from a theoretical basis, I think that would be helpful. Yeah. Well, next time he comes on, we will definitely ask him. So thanks so much. I look forward to your behavior change lecture. We'll probably do it in August or sometime soon after that. Thank you so much for being part of the Chef AJ Broadcasting Network. It's been a pleasure spending the last six months with you. Thank you. We'll see you in August. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow when my guest is Corey from the Holland Bowl Mill. He'll be talking about all his wonderful products, hopefully giving us a discount. But Drs. Chala and Chala on Friday, I think you might want to watch because it, Dr. John Scharfenberg, who's been on my show twice before, who's almost 100 years old, is going to be giving a fascinating PowerPoint as a presentation on diet, alcohol, and hardline drugs. And I think it's, okay. it's kind of going to complement what you talked about today. So I'm really looking forward to it. So 11 o'clock Pacific time on Friday. On Friday. And then the guy's almost a hundred and he was at my house for a potluck a few weeks ago. And I invited Dr. Goldhammer and Dr. Lyle. They, I mean, Dr. Goldhammer lives uh, like two hours away. He came to meet this almost hundred year old, amazing doctor who was raised vegetarian and is now vegan. He's a seventh day Adventist. And we're sitting at the, at the table and he has it, not slides, but he has them on pieces of paper. And he basically gave us the lecture. It was basically the history of the PowerPoint. I go, no, 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 you got to come and do this in slides on my show. So he's going to talk about that. I'm very excited. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah. we will we will try to catch it, of course. Thank you. And thank you. And I forgot, guys, if you're free 2 p.m. today, we are going to be having a show with Rancho La Puerta to see if anybody's interested in the last few spots in August. Take care, everyone.